Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast? Digital 410 Productions. Uh, see how my levels are all jacked up. Let's see. What's up, Jeff? There we go. I haven't done a show in so long. Our levels are messed up. Here we go. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast? Digital 410 Productions proudly. One of two of those. Huh. Okay, here we go. Now I know what's going on. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What is going on, everybody? It's been a while, but we're all back together on the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. It's, uh, it never fails here at the At Computer Studio. You know, we try to come off looking all professional, and uh, I let everybody in the house know we're going live here at 9.30-ish. And just as we start the show, the young one's busting the door asking me, when the last time I let the dog use the bathroom? And that is why we need a public studio, but that is besides the point. Joining us from Texas, as he often does, Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, what is going on, friend? Hey man, it's good to be here. Good to good to hear from you, and I, I can't wait for another episode, man. This this gets more and more fun. It's uh, it's speaking of fun, we're gonna talk about your car here momentarily. But joining us here also from Cape Coral, Florida, is Giovanni Macaulay. Gio, how are you doing tonight, friend? Good. How's it going? Things are going well. Um, I want everybody to uh, get to know who you are here momentarily, but real quick, our friend and our co-host here, Jeff, lives out in Texas. And he's been showing off, flossing this beautiful car on his Instagram page and his Facebook page. I think he has to drive this beautiful old car well because his truck's causing problems. But what, what kind of car is that, Jeff? <laughs> Man, so here's the thing with that. <laughs> so what happened was... Uh, yeah, so what do we want to talk about first real quick? The car or the truck? Well, which yeah, came my first? Truck, <laughs> my <laughs> So I love my truck, man. I love this truck. And uh, it's a 2012 Ram, big and black. And, uh, yeah, apparently it was the fuel pump that went out. And um, they're like, you know, after 133,000 miles, you know, this thing happened. Like, jeez. I don't want to be that guy, but I think it's called a fuel sending unit. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Fuel pump. What is this, 1942? It's a fuel sending unit. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's a world war ii podcast man there you go <laughs> anyway yeah so um i'm truckless for a few days so hopefully i won't come across any smoking deals on any uh you know uh world war ii artifacts or antique uh furniture anything like that but uh well, that car okay, has a big have, trunk on it you can fit a yeah, couple of cots in there yeah it is actually a really it's a good sized trunk so yeah for for all the listeners, since you uh, piqued their interest, I uh, recently acquired a 1950 Dodge or uh, DeSoto Custom. With uh, it's considered the most Vermont car in Vermont, and now it's in Texas. Um, it was bought in 1950 in Newport, Vermont, by a police detective, and then purchased by the Newport, Vermont funeral home director when when the detective passed away in the 70s. And then purchased from that family in 2008 from a big car collector here in Texas. And then I purchased it from him. And it has 31,000 original miles. What? On. My Tundra yeah. had 50 on it with 50,000 when I bought it. 
So your car, your your fifty three DeSoto has less miles on it than my Tundra. Is that Robin Egg Blue? What, what's the official color of that paint? Yes, no, it's actually it's a fifty. It's a it's a nineteen fifty, and which kind of appealed to me because that's the same year my dad was built. <laughs> you know, um, so the paint code I think was Pacific Blue. Ooh, um, I they, they they've had a Pacific Blue. Yeah, they had a Pacific Blue and they had a Regal Blue, but. They also had some two-tone where, like, the roof would be painted a darker color. So I'm not too sure. I'm really not too sure which one that is. But it's almost all original. I mean, I've done a little work on it, you know, spark plugs and fuel filter um, and rebuilt the starter. And other than that, man, it's just, oh, man, there's a lot of chrome to polish on that thing and big old giant white walls. But so, yeah, it takes me back, man. I mean, you, you drive a car that old. And, and for some of our listeners, you know, who, who have restored World War II vehicles, you know that. Today, you drive vehicles. As comfortable as they are, as little bit of intervention as you need, you, know, you barely touch the pedal, and you've got all this automatic stuff, but you still drive them. Those cars, man, when I'm driving at DeSoto, you're, I still feel like I'm going along for the ride, even though I'm driving. It, it's just something – It's just, it, I don't know. It's just another level of enjoyment being behind the wheel. It, it's just something that's hard to explain, and I guess if people have experienced it, they know. Just like riding a motorcycle. Well, if, go- if you guys ride bikes, and I don't, but my dad put, I don't know, like a half a million miles on his Harley since the 60s. And when your knees are in the breeze, there's nothing like it. Yeah, it looks like the uh, DeSoto was, uh, is obviously a division of Chrysler that was active between 1928 and 1961. Um, interestingly uh, enough, yeah. there is a DeSoto Motor Company. It's a car lot located near you in Fort Worth, Texas, but right now they're closed. But speaking of motorcycles, that's a great segue over to our guest, Giovanni. Giovanni owns uh, the local um, custom motorcycle shop called Diablo Customs here in uh, Cape Coral, Florida. Um, But before we get into that, Gio, one of the things we like to do here on the podcast is when we bring on a guest for the first time, we like people to get to know you a little bit. So uh, give us a little background on you, um, where you grew up, what year you enlisted in the military, etc., I'd grown up uh, here in Southwest Florida, moved here when I was about five from New Hampshire, Uh, went to Gateway Charter High School when it first opened up and then transferred to Fort Myers High, Uh, decided I'd always wanted to be in the military and with things, how things were going in school and everything, I really just wanted to do something a lot different and try and better myself. So a month after I turned 17, I decided I was going to bring some paperwork home to mom and dad and hope that they would sign it for me. How well did that go over? Uh, dad was all for it. He's like, great. Mom just was pretty quiet for a while. What year um, was this? That was 2008. Okay. So we were, we we're, you know, a good seven years into what's going on now. So I'm sure she wasn't too pleased about the, uh, the idea because obviously it's one thing for your kid to join in peacetime, but, another to join and uh, we're in the middle of an active war. Yeah, I think, I think that was their biggest issue. I had joined up um, to be an infantryman. I kind of just wanted to get away and I uh, did five, I ended up serving five years. I was stationed at Fort Bliss in Texas and then did a, did a deployment to Iraq, was there for 13 months, uh, re-enlisted again, got stationed in Hawaii and stacked up for several other uh, trips and ended up getting out in March of 2013. Uh, who were you assigned to? 
I was assigned to 177 Armored at Fort Bliss, 235 Infantry in Hawaii, and then 121 Infantry in Hawaii. So 1st Armored Division and 25th Infantry Division. Jeff, what years were you over again? Uh, well, I joined in 2000, but uh, I didn't go to base like uh, like Geo there. I started joining when I was 17. Uh, so I went in 01 to 05 and also 13 months over there. And so Geo had uh, reached out to me because he listens to uh, my podcast. And um, he has a very, very cool project going on over at Diablo Customs. Um, Gio, why don't you explain it to our audience in uh, your best terms? Because who better to pitch a business than uh, the person running it? I, I always found that riding motorcycles was and, and mechanics itself was very relieving. Um, I was diagnosed with severe PTSD uh, after getting discharged. And I always found that working on cars and motorcycles and riding motorcycles was it, it kind of freed me up a bit. So I really wanted to share that passion with a lot of people. And, you know, there's so many initiatives that that are out there for disabled veterans and for veterans and for active duty personnel as well. But they they really don't hit the nail when it comes to it. it majority of the time it's veterans that are taking care of other veterans that's when you see the real results and becoming a business owner this year opening up my own motorcycle shop i really wanted to branch out and have veterans come around you know that maybe are in a similar mindset maybe just getting out and going through a tough time having a hard time adjusting family issues whatever it may be and they can come around learn a trade if they, you know, if needed and get to talk and just be around other like-minded people. So I'm definitely wanting to branch out and hire and work with the VA as far as, you know, getting listings and everything else for veterans that may be in need and going from there with it. I think if you're a member of the younger audience, um, you may not realize because of the era in which you grew up in everything is hands-on as far as computers um, cell phones um, the type of work that younger people tend to do but there is something that's very very therapeutic about working with your hands whether it's something you do full-time for a living whether it's if you had a wood shop out in your garage if you just tink around during the weekends if you have a project car there's a lot of times when I get stressed out I'll just you know Find time, um, you know, for this podcast, I created a what I call the At Computers What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast Studio in a Crate, um, where I built that out. I created a um, a um, propane gas stove that looks like a supply crate, so that I'm when I'm at a World War II event, I don't have to hide up all hide all my modern day stuff with tarps. It when it's all put back together, it just looks like a 1940s crate, and I make all that with wood, just using rudimentary tools, a chop saw, and you know, cordless drills and things like that, but. It's very therapeutic, one, to work with your hands, but two, when you look at a space and there's nothing there, and when you're done, there's something there that didn't exist before, and knowing that you made that, there's nothing that beats that. Exactly. Definitely. It's it, it's one of them things where you can take pride in your work, you know, even if it's something as simple as, you know, painting something on a motorcycle or, you know, just changing out little things, it's still something that you made different, that you made yours so it, it there's always a great benefit to it 
Well, and, and there's also something to working on things yourself. I'm sure Jeff knows that once he puts in that new fuel sending unit that there's some satisfaction that comes from working on your car. Obviously, I'm not going to drop a transmission on my truck in the driveway, but when it comes to changing oil, uh, changing the brakes, things like that, do it yourself. Uh, you'll save a couple bucks, and you'll actually start to take um, ownership and satisfaction in your vehicle. Exactly. It's just something that you make yourself, and you know, you just take pride in it. You know, even if it's something that you didn't know how to do and you researched how to do it, even if you mess it up the first time, it's still something that you you tried to do and that you learned about and something to be proud of regardless. No, I, I, think we're, I think we're all going to fail once or twice, and it's a matter of how we fix it. Absolutely. Part of it's got to be scary as hell to start a business in 2020. I started mine back in 04. I survived the Great Depression Part 2 in 08. Things are bouncing back. But with all the insanity that's going on in 2020, um, it's got to be a scary time to start a business. It definitely is. I have two young kids. I, I have a wife. And, you know, it's definitely something that always looms at the back of my head every morning when I wake up and every night when I go to bed. You know, a lot of a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, a lot of overnights. But it's just luckily I have a good support structure and I have a really good friend that's actually one of my business partners. And she definitely backs me up and, and we kind of bounce off of each other. Support structure at home is amazing and it, it it keeps you going, especially when, you know, my kids can come down to the shop and they say, wow, look at the look at what you built, daddy, you know, and it's it just makes me work that much harder. And then also seeing with veterans and, you know, I at the beginning of this year, I was going through a really hard time, just like a lot of other people, you know, and I, I had a mental break. And thankfully, I met an officer that was a veteran and he was able to communicate with me and definitely took care of me, you know, and that goes back to my original statement of it's veterans that take care of veterans. And well, here's where we are. <laughs> well, Jeff is also very lucky enough to find a way to um, maintain his livelihood and to work in two different areas that revolve around his passion, which is not only military, but World War II. Jeff, I would assume that, um, obviously it's a little different because you're in the World War II stuff, but whenever you're able to surround yourself with uh, like-minded people and fellow veterans and also be in the area of working with a passion, it's, it's got to make things a lot easier, does it not? Oh, man, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think any veteran, when, when we get out, um, I think we're always looking at, at you know, a lot of us had maybe some negative things happen to us during our military service, whether it's uh, deployment overseas or just, or anything traumatic, anything, you know, um, it's not, it's not all, you know, roses and sunshine, but uh, when we get out for the most part, what I've seen with the guys that I know, we're still trying to find something that fills that void. And there's just something about being able to turn around left and right. And you know, these guys have your back. And when you are thrust in the civilian world and you go in with that same mindset, um, you know, in a civilian job, like, Oh yeah, this guy, you know, and then they don't have your back. Yeah. It makes it very tough. And, and it's really hard to find something that really fills that void. And, and I hear where, where Gio's coming from and I really commend him what he's doing, man. It, congratulations, dude. Cause 
I mean, you know, like Don said, being a business owner right now and, and being a young guy and, and raising a family, that's a lot in itself. And to do something where you know you've got you you've got veterans from 50 states that may visit your motorcycle shop, and you know you're going to have a connection with them right away, and you will you know they will always be welcome back and 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 be a part of our family because that is important for sure. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, well, and the other advantage the two of you guys have over a civilian such as myself, and especially with what Geo's trying to do, is me as a civilian, I will never know that true brotherhood you guys have. And it's such a deep brotherhood that it, and Jeff, I know, for example, that you work with people who served 30 years ago, people served 25 years uh-huh. ago, people served 40 years ago, and it, the age doesn't matter. The conflict doesn't matter whether, you know, the fact that you guys went through the same or similar things, it just creates something that people like me, we will never know. And that's something that you just can't replace. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that is something that, you know, as a kid, um, you know, growing up knowing that I was going to be in the military and of course, you know, I joined peacetime. It was, I was in basic, you know, when September 11th happened. So I never really thought that. And what was our last award, Desert Storm? You know, you could expect maybe something like that, but not at all the magnitude that, that we found ourselves in, you know, when I was there, 04 and 05 and, and, and so on and so forth. And of course, in the covering uh, Geo's time of service too, I mean, it really ramped up around that same time for the surge and everything. And, and never would have dreamed that we would be a part of this generation. And, and I just think to something that, um, my brigade commander said, um, you know, he's forced star now actually, but when, uh, when our unit was redeploying to come back home, he said, boys, you, you don't realize it right now, but maybe 10 years from now, this will hit you that this is the most important thing that you'll ever do in your life, that you are a part of history. And you don't, you don't realize that when it's going on around you, you know, you don't realize that for me, it took me, Oh man, I was home for six years. It wasn't until my second kiddo was born, my daughter, that everything hit me. It was in 2011. The whole war just kind of came back and, and showed its nasty face it, like no other way. And yeah, you know, you, yeah, you want to be in the military and you, you're going to be this cool veteran. Yeah, cool. You don't really know what it means. And you, you still, it, it surprises me every day that the camaraderie that's still there and the people that I meet and immediately like oh you were in oh yeah oh man oh yeah boom done brothers forever (laughs) you know it's it's really something it really is well and that's kind of a shows both sides of the spectrum because as you said you were in basic during peacetime and it's not like you know it's not like world war ii per se where you know there was conflict going on and we're trying to negotiate peace treaties we're all minding our own business one day and then next thing you know two planes flying to the towers how do you looking back on it now was there like a mindset readjustment you had to do or was it more like oh shit it's on let's go i mean how does that impact someone to be a basic training where you think okay probably i might get stationed overseas to do you know whatever occupy some some space to oh shit things just got real dude it so i didn't really know what it meant until I got back home the end of October. I didn't really know what went on. And the way we were briefed was we were attacked. And we don't know when you guys may go because 
you know, I was combat arms as well, you know, like infantry, I was, I was cav, but so, yeah, I mean, you're the guys that this is what it's all about. And it completely changed the complexion of training overnight. I mean, overnight it was to me, and I, I used a lot with, uh, you know, doing educational programs, especially for kiddos, trying to make them understand Pearl Harbor day and what that was like to go from a peacetime military to wartime, literally in a 24 hour period. It, it, you don't see that every day. And yeah, I really was super clueless because I didn't know anything. And when I come back in October, almost beginning of November, that's when I first saw like footage of a plane hitting the building. Like what? Like people saw this live. I couldn't even imagine. I was just out in the field. I was just out in the suck. You know? Well, that's what I was so, just thinking when you said that. I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. He was basically sequestered. You don't, you guys only got the information, which was fed to you through the military whereas i'm building ambulances listening to howard stern when a plane hit the building and gary came on and said hey a plane hit the building and we all just kind of thought oh cessna was doing you know a, a tourism fly through the city and and flew off course and then then it wasn't until about 20 minutes later like, no it was a freaking airliner and then i was i was actually um listening when the second one hit once again building ambulances and when to show how long ago this was, I was walking to the restroom and walked past the security desk where they had a 13-inch black and white television. Yes, they were still in play back then, and I saw the, the, the first tower go down on that. And so, clearly, and by the time I got home, my ex-wife, she was my wife at the time, she had like wasted all her ink toner printing up Yahoo News stories. So I definitely probably had a lot more information compared to what you had because, once again, you were out, out in the suck and only being relayed what little information they felt you guys needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't understand the full complexity of it and, and, and the impact that it had on the American public and the civilians at home for, for months. But, you know, it, to me, it says something else too, um, to get back to geo to, to join peacetime. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to join and it's my whole life and my whole childhood. I knew, like I knew I was going to serve and I only could, you know, I, I, in a weird way, hoped that I would serve during a conflict. You know, I wanted to be like these World War II veteran heroes that I grew up admiring, you know, and listening to their stories. Like, man, I want that. I want that. I want that. I didn't know what it, you know, I had no idea what comes with it, but I wanted it. And yeah, I got it. But here's the deal. Joining in 2000, going in basic 2001 is a lot different than Geo joining in 2008 when he has seen this war for the past, you know, we were on the ground for at least five years at that time, seeing the body count, seeing what was expected of us, watching this war change in front of us. That's a whole nother experience for him to go in, especially like he said, like his mom was probably, <laughs> was pretty quiet. I know my mom would be the same way. I mean, it was hard enough, even though she knew I, I was going to do it, totally supported it. But this is before the war now. Yep. So to join like Geo did, man, that says something else about, you know, the character that, that this guy has as well. Well, that's um, kind of why I preface it by saying I, both sides of the spectrum. And when it comes to that, Geo, what kind of mind state were you in? Like Jeff said, Jeff just beautifully explained, you, you've been seeing this for seven years now. I guess first and foremost, how old were you when 9-11 happened? I was 10 years old. How, what kind of mental impact does that have on a 10 year old child? You know, I, I can, I can still remember everything to this day, it, it, every little detail about it. Um, ironically, I had just written 
I believe it was a week or two beforehand, I had written a book report about Iraq and Afghanistan. And they had wow. all of a sudden, you know, halfway through the day, all these kids are getting pulled out of school and we're like, well, what's going on? You know, we're all just left sitting there and nobody's saying anything yet. And we were all eating lunch and I, I'll never forget till the day I die, I'd made some, you know, offhand joke and, you know, being 10 and I said, I bet you we're going to war with Iraq. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this happened. And I came home, my, I, I walked in and my dad and my mom are just sitting on the couch watching the news. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I did, really didn't fully grasp it at the time, you know, going going to basic training and, and getting to my first duty station and at Fort Bliss, we were just getting ready to deploy right after I got there. I hadn't even hit my 18th birthday yet. And a few few months after I turned 18, they said, okay, yeah, we're going now and it's gonna be easy. And, you know, we're just pretty much there training Iraqi police. And that was the mindset that we were all in. You know, a lot of our NCOs were stop lost at the time because they just needed to fill a spot. And that was the mindset we were all in. And within two weeks of us being there, a very, very seasoned NCO, my team leader was killed. And it really kind of changed the whole mindset of, of the deployment because, I mean, this was a guy that had three deployments under his belt, you know, very, very seasoned battle hardened guy. and we all just took a, st a step back and, you know, if it could happen to him, it could ha happen to anybody, you know, and it, it kind of changed the whole game plan as far as that deployment went. By the time you got over there, we were already seven, eight years into the war. Did you find that there was any um, guys who'd been over there pretty long that had been complacent or does the army do a pretty good job of keeping those guys, um, you know, weeded out, if you will, for lack of a better term? I mean, because at that, that point, there had been a few guys that's been over there a long time and either have seen a lot of action or, on the other end, been back with the rear and the gear for so long that they're just kind of over it. Or was it was everybody just, you know, full steam ahead on the mission? I, I think it was a good mix and match of both. I mean, we had several NCOs that were just recruiters and had never seen a deployment. And some of them reacted well. Some of them didn't. I mean, they're, they're still great guys. You know, I'd still hold them to a high regard, just like I would anybody else. Um, then we also had other NCOs that had been on multiple deployments and yeah, they were, I mean, I wouldn't say complacent. I guess they just kind of were settled in to that sure. mindset, you know, and others that sometimes didn't handle it so well, you know, because like I said, we, on this deployment, we were all expecting it just to be easy. And, you know, that was the mindset that we were put in. And it, it changed extremely rapidly. It's it's not very often that I'm put in a position where I have two veterans, one of them joining later on in the war after we've been there for a while, and the other one being in boot camp and going over there at the start of the war. Jeff, from your experience, I mean, obviously we had guys who were still in the service, carried over from you know Operation Iraqi Freedom and, the, and Desert Storm and all that. But when you guys first deployed, um, a majority of you, I'm sure, really didn't have any real sort of experience in that situation. What was that like for you guys? <laughs> uh, 
you learn quick. <laughs> uh, so with my unit, with Fox Troop, we only had one combat vet, and that was our first sergeant. So this is a guy who'd been in 25 you know, years or so. He was in Desert Storm. Um, and he was actually an infantryman, which was really weird because we were super, like super calved in, in our, in our recon unit. And he was, he was a, an 11 Bravo. He was an infantryman. So it was, you know, in the cavalry, we call him top, you know, which, which is, uh, the tradition for the, the top sergeant goes back to the, the Indian wars. He was your top sergeant and he did not want to be called top. <laughs> you know, that, that's a cavalry term. That's not infantry. Like, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, and, and what did his experience offer us? It, it was totally different. You know, he's living out of a Bradley back in 91. And yeah, we get to Baghdad and it was like totally different. I mean, we luckily, the training that we did have in 03 um, was just invaluable. And I can't ever say it enough. And I, I just, everybody that served in Fox Troop, and there's only, there's less than 60 of us in that whole troop. We actually have a reunion coming up next month. Um, could not have done it without them. And when Gio says about his, you know, the NCOs, for the listeners who don't understand what that is, that's a non-commissioned officer. That's your sergeants, your staff sergeants, your sergeant first classes. That's that's your, your non-commissioned officer level. Those are the guys, that is the backbone of the Army. And Gio, man, I, I feel for you. I'm sorry about you know losing somebody like that because right off the bat yeah that that hits home pretty quick i mean it hits home when anybody you know is kia but when you've got somebody like that that you know the whole platoon or possibly your whole company looked up to um and when something like that happens you didn't think could ever happen to somebody like that yeah man it it hits home and it hits hard and it hits fast and you know, I just remember watching old World War II documentaries about these guys saying, ah, oh, we were just kids, you know, and yeah, we were just kids and we just got lucky and here we are and Don, man, we're just trying to uh, make sure that this stuff isn't forgotten and Geo's got the, the primo attitude, veterans helping veterans, that's what this has to be about. Does it, it, the veteran community and the veteran support community it's bigger than any war. It, that, that is something that's ongoing. Wars come and go, you know, political agendas come and go. Um, but veterans helping veterans has been around since man killed another man in, in combat. And, uh, this is exactly, I'm so glad, Dom, I'm so glad you had him on our, on our show, dude, because this is, this is important stuff. Um, nobody knows what other veterans go through. Uh, and, and veterans don't know what civilians went through. I mean, you know, uh, it, it affected my wife. She's as a high school girl watching planes hit New York city. People shouldn't see that, you know, it's, it's, um, traumatic for, for everybody that's involved. Um, but, uh, it's just important that we, as Americans, we stick together. And, uh, if we can do that, we'll, um, you know, we can beat anything. Speaking of veterans helping veterans, um, we all know that the big Facebook thing for years was 22 for 22. You know, we do 22 push-ups for 22 days to, to bring awareness to the veteran suicide. But I saw a video this morning on TikTok, believe it or not, <clears throat> of a veteran. He said that um, one of his NCOs called him up that he served with. And he said, hey, uh, you know, someone nominated me for this 22 for 22. And he said, you know, that's fine and all, but I got a better idea. He said, instead of doing 22 push-ups, 
how about you call 22 of your friends, your veteran friends? So every day, call one guy, just check up on him. Say, hey, man, how's it going? How's life? Haven't heard from you in a while. He said, you know, push-ups and all that's fine, but what, what, what would have a better impact than actually calling some of the guys you served with or some of the guys you've met that may be veterans? Just check up on them. And I think that's probably a hell of a lot better way to go. Obviously, it doesn't get trending videos like somebody snapping out 22 push-ups on Facebook. But who cares about training videos? I mean, if we're truly here to help and try to raise awareness, what better way to be aware than actually call somebody up and check on them? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, me personally. Are you I, talking to me? Either one of you. Go ahead, Gio. No, go ahead, Gio. Me personally, I mean, I think I think that's a lot better. I always try to keep in touch with, I mean, even the guys that I really didn't get along with, you know, I mean, I still talk to them to this day. I, I still have veteran friends that live local. Um, as a company, actually, in the next two weeks, we're going to Biketoberfest in Panama. And I reached out to several of my veteran friends that are that are motorcycle riders and said, hey, you know, I have this big old place up here. You know, why don't you guys come down? We have people coming from Alabama, Georgia, South Florida, um, all just, you know, for one, just to ride bikes together and, and two, get together and, and hang out, and, you know, things like that. I think reaching out, even if even if it's just to say hi, you know, you, you don't know what kind of change that could enact on somebody's day. Yeah, you know, I mean, just know that you're thinking about them. Yeah, I mean, if somebody's feeling completely long. alone, that phone ring and that hi may be all they need. Exactly. Jeff? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I don't even know how many times I got that that Facebook invite or whatever to, to, to knock out 22 push-ups. And same thing. It's just like, yeah, I mean, it, what is this going to do for somebody else? I mean, yeah, it's trendy and, and whatever. Um, and, and I enjoy watching other people do push-ups. That's, that's cool. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it – um, it's a lot more impactful to, to talk to, to talk to your guys, man. I mean, it, um, I, I'm a big advocate in that. Um, we just, you know, I mean, Don, you know, we just buried one of my, the closest battle I ever had when I was in, uh, last year in Florida. And, um, it's because of him that I think that our unit and the unit that our unit rolled into, uh, after I left and, and when in 06, when they spun back up we're having this big reunion up in grapevine, Texas, and we're going to do it's It's even more important now than it ever was because we all kind of felt that guilt. Like, man, we should have called Chuck one more time. We, we should have, we should have reached out a little bit more because none of, we were just so none of us really knew what he was going through and until it was too late. So if you just out of the blue can make that phone call to, to somebody you served with, doesn't yeah, like you say, like some of these guys, like I couldn't, I don't even want to sit in the same room with them. But when I'm in the same room, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't want anybody else. Like on any other level, probably wouldn't get along with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just kind of one of those things. It's all these multiple personalities thrown into some crazy situation. And it's like the, the, the first Saw movie, like you're just in this room with random people. And, but you, you make it work. Um, but yeah. And, and that goes for, for everybody, all, all the listeners and everybody that can share it. You know, everybody knows a veteran. Everybody knows somebody who served peacetime, wartime, doesn't matter. Reach out to them and just 
it'll probably make their day because um, you probably, you know, there's people out there that think, man, you know, these guys get popular and they get famous. And you think about some of these guys that, that, that have really turned being a veteran into, into a celebrity through social media and things like that, but don't think they can't, you know, that they are above being reached out to as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were all in that same boat once upon a time and yeah, it means a lot to everybody. And that's why it's so awesome what Gio's doing over at Diablo Customs. And one, he started a business in 2020. Two, he started a business in Cape Coral, Florida. Yeah. That's not small business friendly, mind you. Uh, our co-compliance is a real, real kick in the dick. But you were telling me that you're kind of, your neighbors were getting a little annoyed with, I guess, the um, the audible sounds that a chopper and a bobber tend to make when you're test firing them. And that you guys are actually, <laughs> he's so invested in this jeff and he so believed in his cause that him and his wife are going to break ground once they find a piece of property and they're actually going to build their own place instead of you know renting a place next to some neighbors who can give them grief yeah exactly. man that's awesome so cool. i mean we, we we've only been in there for a couple months and and you know and unfortunately sometimes politics and not necessarily government politics but neighborhood politics and and you know tenants looking out you know it, some people aren't into motorcycles some people are some yeah. people don't like the crowd the crowd that motorcycles bring in some people do you know i i think that's a bad thing i think people miss a big picture you know if you could actually sit down and learn you know learn something about somebody you know um but just building this this new complex i think it'll be you know, a lot, a lot more savvy to, to suit the role that this business has, you know, as far as having, you know, rooms there, if people need a place to stay for a few days, you know, there's food. That's a great idea. You can come in and learn a trade. You can do the things that you need to do and, and really be able to take care of yourself as opposed to just, you know, being kicked to the curb and forgotten. Now we know you served in the military, but where did you pick up your, mechanical skills i'm assuming since you're doing custom bikes you know how to weld i mean where do you where did you pick up that talent along the way uh quite honestly pissing off my dad quite a bit when i was a young kid <laughs> uh he would come home from work and you know his lawnmower would be half torn apart you know and couldn't figure out how to get it back together and he wouldn't be able to figure it out and we would just work on it you know i'm, I'm very thankful for my dad you know he stepped into my life when i was four years old, you know, and, and the challenge that he took on with uh, myself and my three siblings, you know, you can never say enough about that man. You know, he always took care of us, always looked out for us, tried to be there as much as he could. And I had a great enough dad that he was able to teach me a lot. And my grandpa was a Korean War veteran. He was a paratrooper in the Korean War. Wow. And he also taught, taught me a lot as well. But just, you know, quite honestly, breaking a bunch of stuff and, and, you know, trying and trying again until I got it right. You know, I can remember being 15 years old and I found a bare motorcycle frame in the trash, no seat, no handlebars, no nothing. And, you know, I had tied it to the back of the truck and let my buddy drive the truck with a tow rope and I had a two by four as handlebars. And, you know, that didn't obviously work out very well, <laughs> but you know, it's just something... You know, I've had friends that are welders that have taught me how to weld. 
my my business partner she's a painter she's taught me how to airbrush taught me how to paint different things what types of different paint there are it's just all uh, honestly quite a big learn as you go experience do you have a media blaster uh no but i'm sure i can get one pretty cheap uh just you know being a little selfish here i, I got me this thing it's called a, a front seam fixed d-bell helmet <laughs> it's a schluter it's from about all oh, i don't know 1941 <laughs> it's got about four coats of green paint on it at some point, this thing was made into a range helmet. You can see the yellow paint bleeding through where they repainted it. I really want to take this thing down to bare metal so I can restore it, and I need somebody with a media blaster and some walnut shell so we can get this thing situated out. Well, I know, I'm pretty sure I know somebody who can paint it up just how you want it. I can Don't paint even... it. I just need the old paint taken off, taken down on bare metal so I can put some primer on it and some new OD green and call it a life. But, yeah, it's... Uh... I'm sure I could work something out for it's you. It's a beautiful helmet. Speaking of which, you told me uh, one of your first bikes, and I believe you just went up to Georgia or were planning on going up to Georgia to uh, reacquire it. It's a modern-day bike, but it's built in, kind of into a World War II theme? Correct. Uh, I had built, uh, again, a veteran buddy. Um, I had built several motorcycles with him. He worked at a motorcycle shop, and we just kind of you know, tooled around with things, tinkered around with things. But I believe it was a nine early 90s sportster and just completely raked out the front end on it we had painted the gas tank to look like the old warplanes and it just it huge manly bike you know really aggressive and it, it just looked awesome i mean there was you know 50 cal rounds that are tied to the frame and it just it's mean as can be but it, it hopefully i'll i'm in negotiations right now to to get that down here because I think it'll look nice cruising down the strip. What kind of power plants that have underneath it? Right now it's just a stock power plant just hopped up on the Is it a the, Honda, Yamaha, know, is it a Harley? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was always a big fan of sport bikes, you know, in the military. And then once I got out and the, the pain started actually hitting my back, I, you know, I, I couldn't do sport bikes anymore. Yeah. Well, Gio, I think it's awesome what you got going on over there. And um, as your facility moves along, obviously we're going to come over there and uh, get some content up for our YouTube channel and uh, bring in part of the Digital 410 family and help blow that, you know, blow up your project, what you're trying to do. I think it's it's great, one, not only helping vets, but starting your own business and doing your own thing. Um, I personally, I started my computer firm in 2004 and then for a short for five and a half years i started working in radio again and i realized oh yeah i remember why i started my own business i don't really follow orders very well and i don't <laughs> being in the corporate world just doesn't suit me too well but uh i'm super excited for what you have going on and i think it's fantastic and i think jeff would agree we both wish you the best of luck with everything appreciate it guys we're going to take a quick break yeah, absolutely and and when we come back, uh, we're going to cut over to some interviews I did when I was up in, um, where the hell was I? I don't even remember. Um, anyhow, I was over on the other coast of Florida a few weeks back. I don't remember where the hell I was. Um, I was at a gun show, and we did the first living history event I've done since COVID came along. And uh, so we're going to come back and uh, join some, you know, Jeff, one of the, few reenact actually i've never had a reenactor or a living historian on this podcast that does a german impression 
We've talked to a lot of guys who do, um, you know, Marine Corps and European theater, but I actually got two gentlemen on here coming up soon after the break. And uh, I think what we'll do is we'll have one of them, we'll cut to one of those interviews this week and we'll save another one for the follow-up episode. And uh, that's what we got going on. So uh, we'll be right back after this break. And uh, you guys hold tight. And this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been providing IT solutions to all of Southwest Florida since 2004. And to be quite honest with you, solutions any place anybody lives since 2010. So if you have internet connection and you need some issues fixed with your computer or your network, give them a call at 239-283-1120. And even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can assist you with your computer problems or the internet. You'll simply go to their website with their instructions and allow them to log in your computer and help you resolve all your issues. If you have employees working from home, they can help you with two-form authentication. They can help you with online backups, antivirus protection, and much, much more. So even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. It's one of the most celebrated feats of World War II. On June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 troops stormed the beaches of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. Less known is that an unlikely snack helped power the Allies before, during, and after the historic mission. In 1937, the United States Army approached a food titan about creating a specially designed snack for its emergency rations. According to the food titan's chief chemist, Sam Hinkle, the United States government had just four simple requests about their new emergency snack. They had to weigh less than four ounces, be high in energy, withstand high temperature, and taste a little bit better than a boiled potato. The army didn't want the snack to be so tasty that its soldiers would eat it in a non-emergency situation. The final product was called D-Ration Bars, a blend of chocolate, sugar, cocoa butter, skim milk powder, and oat flour. The viscous mixture provided too thick to move through the normal manufacturing setup at the plant, so initially each bar had to be packed into its 4-ounce mold by hand. As for taste, most who tried it said they would rather have eaten the boiled potato. The combination of fat and oat flour made the bar a dense brick, and the sugar did little to mask the overwhelmingly bitter taste. And since it was designed to withstand high temperature, the bar was nearly impossible to bite into, so most soldiers who ate it had to slice off slivers with their knife before chewing it. Despite the U.S. Army's best efforts to stop men from doing so, some of the D-ration bars ended up in the trash. Later on in the war, the Food Titan introduced a new version, known as the Tropical Bar, specifically designed for the extreme temperatures of the Pacific Theater. By the end of the war, the company had produced more than 3 billion ration bars. The bar was hardly the only sweet in D-Day rations. Sugar was an easy way to pep up troops and the quick burst of energy it provided made a welcome addition to kit bags. Along with the D-rations, troops received 3 days worth of K-rations. These were designed more as meal replacements and not sustenance snacks like D-rations, and came complete with coffee, canned meats, processed cheese, and tons of sugar. At various points throughout the war, men could find powdered orange or lemon drinks, caramel, chewing gum, and of course, more chocolate. The D-ration bars produced by the food titan known by the name of the Hershey's Chocolate Company wasn't the only contribution to the war effort made by Hershey. Hershey also produced parts for the naval anti-aircraft guns, and Hershey wasn't the only food titan of the era to join the nationwide effort to support American troops. Heinz created a self-heating can that could be lit with cigarettes. And Kellogg supplied decay rations for the soldiers' breakfast. Welcome, everybody. And it is the official release of the Act Computers podcast studio in a crate. As you guys know from watching YouTube channel, I built this thing months and months ago. But with COVID-19, everything's getting shut down. 
but we broke it out. We are doing a podcast next. Is that an M18 or is that an M8 behind us? I think it's M18, I yeah. believe. I'm not. I got to be honest with you, Brian. I was half tempted to say, let's be the first podcast to record from inside of an M8 tank. Um, but I don't know if our cords are quite long enough. <laughs> yeah. Joining us tonight from Vero, in Vero Beach at the Vero Beach Gun Show is Brian. Now, Brian, I'm not even going to bother trying to not massacre. <laughs> so if you would be so kind to uh, share your last name with our audience. It is Brian Lemonovich. Brian Lemonovich. I think I got that. And as always, we are remote. And much like when you hear a radio broadcast that's remote, the ambiance may be a little staticky, but all that. And we're watching the lightning as we come in. But as always, we'll get by. Brian, I asked you to come on the show, and I'm going to have Kevin on here shortly because over the last three years, we have interviewed a lot of uh, veterans. We've interviewed authors and a lot of living historians, but, but primarily guys who always do allied. And I never get the opportunity to talk to gentlemen such as yourself who do the German side. I know, I know you do ally as well, but you primarily, most events, ironically, I've seen you at a handful of events, but you and I have never got to talking. Mm-hmm. And today I saw your shirt that said Cleveland something or other on it. <laughs> Cleveland Low Life. That was Cleveland Low Life. Columbus. <laughs> I said, ah, oh, you're one of those guys. And so we just spent a good 20 minutes getting to know each other over tales of Ohio and Cedar Point and all oh, that. Yeah. But uh, give me a little background on you. I know you grew up in Cleveland, but uh, give us a little background on your growing up and what got you into your interest in living history and primarily what made you decide to do more German events than Allied. Um. Okay, let's see. Yeah, I'm... I grew up my whole life in Cleveland, Ohio. I moved to Florida in the end of 2016, so I've been here for a little over four years now. Um, my, I was always interested in World War II. Uh, my grandfathers and step-grandfathers were all veterans, so they got me into uh, just hearing the stories and stuff. Mostly my, my grandfather on my father's side he, growing up with him, he was uh, he he was a C-47 radio operator, and he mostly in the Pacific. He did the hump. That's where he earned his first DFC. Um, I have another. My other grandfather. He was that's a the distinguished flying cross yeah, for distinguished those who flying aren't cross. aware of the um, the acronym. Do you know exactly what the cross was for? What the mission was? Um, is the flying the hump was uh, the China Burma India campaign and it was a long I don't know all the specifics of it I mean to get into it all but it was basically kind of a lot of guys died trying to do it you had to fly over like it was a very long distance it was over a mountain range of some yeah. sort right and I guess they'd always have bad weather and a lot of guys would if, if they didn't get shot down um, more often than not the weather got them yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, and there was a lot of, uh, and they're in a C-47, and and at this time, I mean, they didn't have any escorts that could fly that far, and if they could, you know, I don't know many that would be sure. would be doing it. So um, that definitely got me interested in it. Um, he got you know showing me stuff and got me kind of collecting it, and I always. I mean, I'm half German, so my my other last on my mother's side is Lingefelter, which is German, and so uh, I, I just always, I guess, even back from like Indiana Jones when they had the the Germans yeah. in there, that always, and I would watch it with my grandfather, and he would be like, "Yeah, I, I didn't have see much action, you know, in the Europe. He did he did serve in North Africa for a short time, but he goes." 
he's like, I didn't have a whole lot of respect for the Japanese because I'd see what they would do, but he goes, I had much more respect for the Germans. They seemed a lot more honorable, and he goes, and they always had cool stuff. So that's what really got me into collecting the German stuff. And and I think one of the important things, you know, obviously most people listen to this podcast, they're up on World War II, but a lot of people are getting into it, and they, and they hear German and honorable. you got to keep in mind, there's two, two extreme separate, and when I say you, I mean the audience, you got to keep in mind there's two extreme separate sides of the German army. You have the Weimar Republic, who is basically, if you're a fighting age and a male, you were basically forced to fight. You didn't have an option. And then you had the SS, which were the kids who were raised up through fucking Hitler youth, and those were the ones who did most atrocities. And um, like when you hear the American Allied veterans talk, you know, they say in the situation, we would have got along with them because most of the Republic, it was the SS that you had to... I met several, um, where I grew up in Cleveland, there's a lot of ethnic Germans, uh, Polish, I mean, I'm half Polish, half German, so um, I did have several in the area that were German veterans that I had met and just interesting stories. And all the ones that I met in that area, they were drafted. One guy was Lafayette, he was drafted at 18, same him and his brother. So, and they kind of have a different perspective. I mean, every one of them, everyone's going to have a different perspective. Sure. Um, to him, he, he said um, he had much contact with, I mean, he was in the regular, he was in the Wehrmacht, and he had contact with the SS. He goes, I, he goes to us, that was like our Marines. He's like, they were tough as hell he's like I, I can't I can't say from knowing him personally because I'm Lafayette I wasn't raised in Germany and stuff but he goes I can tell you one thing is we were happy to have them when we knew they they were covering our flanks so he goes that's that's our you know recollection of them and he goes and beyond that he goes I was stationed in Russia the whole time and he goes I never saw the the western front in Long story short, at the end of the war, he had to walk back to Lafayette. It took him six weeks to Jeez. walk home. And he said just because those Russians that captured him let him go. He was very young at the time. I think he was maybe 19 or 20. He was only, you know, when he got drafted. So he's only in for like two years. And So, yeah, that's kind of my, my background. Uh, How old were you when you got into the uh, living history hobby? Um, I was... It was older. I was always collecting, and it's funny because I was, I was actually, I was, I was taking um, college courses at a local community college, but they had like a military show there, and I was always collecting. And I decided to bring some of my stuff and set up a, an area, and it was, oh, probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now. So now was your collection at the time primary primarily german stuff or did you have allied stuff i well? had some allied stuff but it, it was definitely mostly german the bulk of it was german stuff could you imagine would you think you'd be able to put up put up that same living history display at a college campus in 2020 <laughs> with some of the symbolism that is on the uniforms and yeah the paperwork it, it probably wouldn't a modern fly. Day college now yeah probably wouldn't fly i mean and, and sadly i mean it doesn't seem that long ago i mean it was probably 2005 maybe 2008 at the latest or something. i don't exactly remember but yeah i i couldn't with everything going on now yeah i couldn't imagine i'd probably be thrown off of mm -hmm. there for and it wasn't it wasn't really just a, a living history display. It was like a military show where you would like sell and sure. they wouldn't let you sell weapons. I mean, uh, 
firearms, yeah. but you could sell you bayonets. know bayonets. And, and they, if you had flintlock stuff, they would let you like muzzle load stuff like that. But yeah, it was it seemed kind of strange. It was at a college, but okay. Long story short, I had a guy come up and he goes, "Oh wow, you got a lot of you know cool German stuff." And yeah, he goes, "Oh, you ever do reenacting?" And I said, "No." I said, "I'm mostly into World War II stuff." And it's like, yeah, yeah, well, they have this, this huge event every year. It's called D-Day Ohio, and and it is the biggest event, like, in America. So, and I said, wow, really? And he goes, well, you got a ton of German stuff, and they're always looking for Germans. So, and I go, well, I'll have to look into it, and that's, I've been hooked ever since. So you're telling me one of your first living history events was at that, Conniot? That was my very first you, like, living history. You, like, did a cannonball into the deep end of reenactment. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I didn't get involved in reenacting until I moved to Florida, and so I never. That's still on my bucket list. Uh-huh. Um, I'm hoping to go next year. I couldn't go the last six years because I work in radio. Okay. And I couldn't just take time off, you know, because obviously the flying up there is hard to do because you got all the equipment and it's very expensive, and I don't even yeah. want to deal with TSA and firearms. <laughs> yeah. And so well, I, I was just real quick. Sure. I, every time when I when I move to Florida, and I do it every year, well, except for COVID last year. Uh, I fly back every year, and I still have friends there that will either loan me a weapon or I do a, a German medics impression, and go. actually a Waffen SS medics impression. So, which is, you know, a strange. It's a group of guys that I, I've been doing it with since I, I met them in Ohio. So. Yeah, and because of the drive time that is required to go from the ass into Florida up there, I would need to almost take two weekdays off of work and I oh, yeah. wouldn't that be able to do it but now that I'm no longer in radio and I own my own business I, hopefully I can make it work but that's always been on my bucket list and I heard I still don't know why they do it in the middle of August growing up in Ohio I know August is like one of the damn hottest times <laughs> yeah. so why they do it in the middle of August is beyond me but apparently they discovered that's the easiest time to do it for most of the people who are involved yeah but uh, for those who aren't familiar with that event correct me if I'm wrong there's like I, I, 2,000 reenactors and like three, 4,000 spectators? Oh, the spectators, they estimated last, not... Um, the last event they had. The last event they had, the last time they estimated spectators, 30,000 spectators. That's, that's like the Super Bowl yeah. living, living history. And, and they say, and, and I, I, I do German, they said the area that the Germans cover on Lake Erie... The reenactors, there's actually more German reenactors than were actually in that area at Normandy <laughs> on the beaches. So uh, it's it's pretty uh, pretty wild. How do they, they do it logistically with the landing craft so that the audience don't see the guys loading the landing craft, driving out, do a circle, and come back in? Do they, like, go down around the bluff or they something? They actually do because even we're in the best spot because we're up on the bluff and we got binoculars, we got, you know, mm-hmm. spotting equipment, and I don't even see them loading these guys. So there's, it's kind of, it's a big, nice open area, but kind of just out of view that must be where they load it because we can't even us as the germans on the bluff can't even see them loading the guys so it looks pretty legit for us have you ever fought the urge to do an ally impression just so you can experience riding the landing craft i did and i was gonna do it i was gonna trade off with the guy that does um i think uh third id or something he, he wanted to try german and i wanted to try to allied and we just never were able to to do it but i would like to try i sadly to say i i 
I get seasick, but I'm sure I could take something for it. But that's the that's the main reason. I don't care about the heat going up the yeah. the beach. And man, I feel for those GIs coming up the beach. I've been told that beach is it's brutal, deep, and it wears you out. And you and almost need to train. To <laughs> the worst part about it, it's not Florida beaches where it's nice soft sand. There are Crap. boulders on that beach, and and the and I feel for these guys because they're. You know they're coming in and then they're dropping down. I mean, you are literally lay, like dropping down on huge chunks of rock. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, I mean, you know, we're looking at it from a reenactor's perspective, but you know, a lot of uh, you know, guys that are doing it, you know, they're not in their prime, and yeah. it's like going up there with all that gear and yeah, I, and especially. For me, and I've taken, you know, especially doing medic for a long time on the beaches, um, I mean, we pulled off guys from having heat stroke, GIs, that we'd pull them up, and luckily we have, like, regular EMT, you know, German reenactors that are EMTs that are nearby. So, yeah, I remember a couple years ago we had at least three or four guys. I mean, one guy, he didn't even, he didn't remember where he was. He didn't know his name. Uh... He did know that he did not want his pants cut off because <laughs> they're original. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. These are, no, not $140 trousers. These are original. He must have been a short fella. Yeah. I, I, yeah, he, he, he was, he was kind of shorter. But uh, I just remember, and, and my buddy was like, he's an EMT, and he actually works for the county of Conneaut. And he goes, look, buddy, he goes, he goes, let us take it. It's all us guys here. He goes, we got to get this stuff off of you. Mm-hmm. You've got to cool down. He goes, because I am an EMT. He goes, these are my friends that are going to be coming, and they're not going to care. They don't care about this hobby and how much your pants cost. They're going to cut them off. So let's – and finally, he got some water. He got cooled off. He remembered where he was and everything. So that, And not that's only cool. are they going to cut off the pants, but they're going to cut your leggings off too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everything. Yeah. So. Well, you – I did have the experience to do the landing craft from doing Fort Morgan, Alabama two years ago at the uh, 75th anniversary of Peleliu. We did Peleliu and Tarawa, but that year oh, nice. we were supposed to have two landing crafts, but because of the hurricane, one of the landing craft owners worked out on an oil rig, and oh. he was stuck out there, so he didn't have time to get the loading craft out of dry storage and have it passed for insurance. Uh, but we still made it work. Um, there was actually a marina a mile down the road. And our unit was the only one who did the mile force march. All the rest of the guys hopped in cars and drove down there. To me, one the two most memorable things about that is doing a force march in full battle rattle mm-hmm. and walking down the road and how bad it sucked. And then right when you got to see the marina, you just snapped into shape. And <laughs> doing that was great. And, and the landing craft was awesome. And there's just something about, you know, you can do these events and you can get dirty and all that. There's something about running through that water and being covered in sand and laying up on that beach with, with all the the fire going out and all the sound effects it's just it's just a great crazy experience and so yeah connie it's definitely on my list hopefully i can get up there next year when they have it yeah um, it's definitely out of all the you know i i won't talk bad about it i mean that's kind of my hometown area it and i love it and i think it's everyone has to do if they're a reenactor world war ii i mean for sure it's it's gotten a little bit more where there's like there's a lot of like vendor stuff and yeah. it's just gotten so much where it's almost like because man it's hard to even the- yeah and it does their revenue but yeah oh i love that event i mean my yeah. first event and it just it is it's so it's just getting bigger and bigger it's almost like congested now it's just such a big big event but yeah it's 
and when you only have so much acreage and you want to fit vendors in, mm-hmm. then you get to the yeah. point where you're down on the hill running up the beach and you see tents and you're smelling elephant ears. <laughs> yeah, house, yeah, yeah. And it kind of takes you out of the, uh, but, of the experience. Yeah, and when my um, – I went one year and I, I, I build um, uh, reproduction. I mean, they're, they're um, post-war, but they're I, – I build bicycles like in yeah, the German so military. Yeah, here. Um, so I, I make a mock-up of German military bikes, and because that's was pretty much the main vehicle that the Germans had, which you know everyone thinks the German army like big tanks and everything, but you know I, I don't know the percentages, but it was high, way more horses and, and bicycles than any other vehicle, hundred percent for sure. When starting to build a replica German bicycle, what kind of frame do you start with? Obviously, you can't go out and get a track frame or you know a schwinn yeah um what i look for um you have to i mean the the nice thing is is the european bicycles they kind of kept them the same from the 40s all the way to like late 60s um even some like early 70s so but you have to be able to the big difference um and they had them at the time but uh they have the German, the Wehrmacht issue bicycles were 28-inch wheels. The most of the stuff you find in the U.S., the the British and even I found British, Polish, French. I mean, but they got to be European. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the main thing, and um, it's the wheel sizes in the 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 Wehrmacht ones. And and in that period, the 28s were more popular. They had 26s, and that's what most of the ones I build have 26-inch wheels on it. So. That's kind of a downfall because it's just, it's almost impossible to find them in the States, the the 28s. You can find them, like the the one bike that Justin has, it's got 28s on it. But. Yeah, it's almost at the point where, like, if you decided to do this as a revenue stream, you'd almost have to find a company in China to make you the rims of that diameter and then mm-hmm. do all the spoking yourself. Yeah, yeah, because it's, and then having the clientele, and when I, when I lived in Ohio, I, I would find so much more bikes up there. I'd find yes. them, and, and near near next to nothing, some of them, it's just like an old bike someone found in their garage, and I knew more people, and they're like, oh, yeah, I, got, I know this lady. She's got a bunch of old bikes in her garage. You want to check them out? And, you know, now that I moved into Florida, like, they are a dime a dozen. I mean, they're not a dime a dozen. Yeah. They're, like, hard to find. So, I mean, I'll have to drive hours just to find a semi-decent one, pay ten times what I would pay somewhere, you know, when I was living up north, but... Well, that's because when all the old folk live, move down here, they sell, they, you know, they, they clear out the garage that has their kids' bikes in it from the mm-hmm. 60s. You know, anytime you find any antique stuff, and you're from Ohio, so you'll get this, um, my fiancé got fixated on milk cans. Okay. You go to an antique store down here, a russet-ass milk can will cost you about 80 to $90. Wow. I went up to um, Indiana, because my mom still is in Kentucky, and I went over to Madison, Indiana, and um, I, they were going for $25, <laughs> because yeah. Kentucky and Indiana, that's dairy country. Mm-hmm. And so you can almost, like, that was the first year, and I didn't buy one, because we had the Volkswagen Jetta. Yes, that's right. I'm a reenactor. I drive a t- Tundra now, and a... Volkswagen because to the victor goes the spoils and I like I like vehicles that run and so we didn't have room in the trunk and so I went up there the next year and they were they had already got the forty bucks but it's still cheaper than they are down here so it's almost like I want to go up there with my truck load up on dairy mm-hmm. cans yeah. down here and make a small fortune off of them yeah but that's because people sell all that stuff before they move down here and so you don't have access to it all mm-hmm. 
And that is the sound of Mike putting a new tent peg. Mike gets the award for the hardcore viewer beach um, <laughs> yeah. reenactor. It rained all day yesterday. It stopped at 10 p.m. We went to bed at 2, and he only brought a shelter half. He didn't bring the full tent. <laughs> and so we actually slept out underneath his half of a shelter. Um, he said he got a little chilly. Now, I slept in my pup tent, and those things are little ovens. I Around 4 this morning, I had to open the flap because I was sweating my ass off there because <laughs> yeah. of the hot heat. Um, speaking of which, the, ja- the I was going to say the Japanese because I do so much specific stuff. The German tent, what is that thing called again? It's called a Zeltbahn. It's basically, it's the Germans just, their engineering was great. Um, it's basically made up of four triangle panels, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They button together and they just have a single pole that goes up in the center, almost like a teepee or a pyramid. Mm-hmm. And, and because of the, the shape of the panels, you can go from a two-person to four-person. Those things can just grow exponentially. Yeah, you, you can. I've seen them. They've made field hospitals out of them. That they've buttoned so many. To, I mean, hundreds yeah. buttoned together. I mean, they're they're. It's a pretty cool design. The four is obviously the most simple, especially if you have four already buttoned together. Um, the eight is pretty common, but it gets kind of wonky. It's more of like a twinky shape, like a. But the whole idea, the Germans, they were issued one. Mm-hmm. So technically, isn't that little that little teepee is for four guys? Wow. Um, but the the idea, well, you know, in theory, the idea is two guys would sleep, two guys stay up and guard, and they'd switch go. off. Um, and you, the average height was five two. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot shorter. And uh, but most. Uh, you know the the German veterans that I've met and just reading books and seeing it most of the time they didn't have enough time to set those things up they'd use it as a blanket like they were lucky if they got to stop somewhere for a couple on the ground and sleep if they were in somewhere cold they would use it as a blanket or if it's raining to cover themselves but very rarely unless you saw them in a rear area where they were there a while they they hardly ever set them up. Now so. that one panel is a little smaller than a single half of a shelter half. I would assume that that thing folds down pretty small and you can carry it quite easily. Oh yeah, it, it, it folds down and then it rolls and they give you two leather equipment straps and then it goes on the, right the back of the, your... The gas mask holder or something? Mm-hmm, yeah, it just buckles back there. And yeah, and so each soldier was issued one. And the cool thing about them is they have a, a slot in the middle which opens up and it, and it covers as a rain poncho. So they were waterproof, you put it over yourself, and they have a whole little booklet on how you can fold them and put them up in different ways. There's a way that you're supposed to wear one while you're riding a bicycle so it doesn't get caught in the chain oh. and everything, like it buttons between your legs, and, and uh, they have a way of making them into a stretcher that you use the, the poles, and, and it's funny because I was just reading on a, a former or something the other day about has anyone ever used to, at an event you know the the Zeltbahn as a stretcher and you know everyone kind of had the same consensus as well for one the buttons wouldn't be very strong on, on a reproduction one yeah. and, and on an original you wouldn't want to use it for that and and two, yeah. they were 110 pounds. Yeah, pounds. yeah that, that was the main thing. That uh, <laughs> there's uh, some heavy reenactors, and 
Well, and to be, it, and to be fair, you, like you mentioned before with D-Day, the reason so many reenactors are older is because of the financial barrier to entry. Oh, yeah, if, if yeah. If you're 16, 17, and you have well-off parents who want to drop thousands of dollars on their kids, mm -hmm. it's not until most people get in their 30s and 40s and they have careers and they have, or in the case of probably you and my, myself, guys who spend three or four years putting the shit together before they even actually get involved in yeah. the first reenactment. And I, and I have to say, and that is one of the main reasons that I did German instead of GI, because I couldn't at the time afford an M1 Garand. Yeah. And that's what you needed. to. I mean, that or an M1 carbine, and I wasn't a big car. I'm like, if I do GI, i got to have it. That's M1 a very good point. Um, when I got into this, I, ha I bought a Denix Thompson, because I wasn't doing ring and act. I was just doing living history. Uh -huh. And then at the time, John Thomas, who was running First Idea ID, he was going around, and he actually bought extra uniforms and gear and he would pull around a utility trailer and he was trying to recruit young cats and what he would do is outfit them for a event or two see if they're into it before their parents go drop all the money mm -hmm. and so um, I actually know that before John let me borrow an M1 Garand my first event was actually a Marine Corps tactical where Mike Blosky allowed me to use his trench gun and so if it wasn't for guys like Mike or John I wouldn't have been able to participate in a weapons demo or even a reenactment because I like you're saying it, yeah. that you know the um, the gun and the the boots are usually the the, fir the yeah. large expenses. So, <laughs> yeah. um, luckily, I got my M1 at a um, gun show about three or four years ago before the market really blew up on it. And um, I think I lucked. I, I think I got mine for I don't know a little over eight. Okay. I was very lucky. But yeah, that's yeah. That's they seem to the, stay around the thousand dollar range now. They've gone up, uh, you know, fifteen hundred. I mean, it kind of seems. Twelve to fifteen hundred seems. I saw some price gouges today. Oh yeah, there's a guy here doing private sales, selling all his World War II stuff. He had original Colt 1911s going for like twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah, M1s were close to three thousand, and these weren't like M1s with like grenade launchers or sniper kits. These were just straight up numbers matching Springfield Armory M1 Garands, and they weren't even like collector grade. They were like field grade, and like it's like, damn dude, you trying to like buy like you gotta pay hospital bills or what why is this stuff so marked up i don't think he sold a single thing today yeah i i saw the same guy he had one it was dollars he had another one that his cheap one was like thirty nine hundred dollars i'm like are you are you kidding me i, I saw mean, 1903 springfield nothing special just matching numbers going from 895 dollars yeah yeah it's it's outrageous now i mean even you know back in i mean me and you are the same age so Back in the the late 90s, I mean, you could pick up, you could actually, you know, this is when I was 18. I, my very first first weapon was a, um, when I turned 18, I went to a gun show, like, this is the nearest one, um, you know, that following weekend, and I bought an SKS for $75. Oh. And that was with 100 rounds with it. So now, I mean, the cheapest one I saw in there was $700. So that's, that's right after they lifted the, the first assault rifle. Band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the, the cheapest one, and people still just can't fathom it, but Mosin Nagant's, the full-length ones and the M44, the carbine ones, they had them stacked probably six high in boxes right when the Russians just dumped them, mm -hmm. and they were 40 bucks a piece. And you could just pick through whatever one you want. There was guys selling them at gun shows. I remember the guys like, you buy four, you get one free. And they would just have cans of ammo for like, for like 25 bucks for like a thousand rounds of ammo in the, the Russian sealed 
ammo cans. I mean, I was it was insane. Told if you bought a Mazda and a Gaunt, you wanted to buy two, one for parts. I don't know <laughs> yeah. The local gun store down Cape Coral, he has three of them. That, that, I mean, they're still covered in the goddamn grease. They they are mint looking, but they're going for like 450 bucks. Yeah, yeah. The che- I saw a guy in here. The cheapest one I saw was like 350 which, you know, I sold all mine. I wish I would at least kept one. I had four of them because wow. at the time I'm like, I sold I sold all four because I wanted to buy an AK-47. I mean, I was younger. I was like, dude, I want sure. the only The reason I bought those Mosins was like, you could get them cheap. You can go out and shoot them and get surplus ammo. You know, I had a buddy that worked at a nursery. Every Sunday we'd go out there and we'd just shoot whatever we wanted. It was fun as hell. From but what I understand, the ammo is still pretty damn cheap. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. Kicking myself in the ass because I didn't have the money at the time. About three or four years ago, um, radio listener reached out to me, wanted to sell me an Arasaka for four hundred dollars. Wow. Nose are going through the roof. But let's get back to the German side. Um, okay. Obviously, as we we're kind of talking earlier before, there is the stigma involved yeah. in the German side and your uniforms and the patches and all that. Um, when you got into this, or when you meet someone for the first time, or they come to your house and they see some of your your stuff, what is some of the crap that you find you have to constantly overcome when explaining people your hobbies, or they see you on Facebook and your uniforms and all that? Um, there's just so much stigma that come along with it. Hey, first and foremost, you can't have a reenactment without enemies. Just like it'd be like watching Private Ryan with no German. You gotta <laughs> yeah. have somebody doing it, mm-hmm. and it's gotta be. You gotta have a pretty thick skin, I'm sure, to do German reenacting, at least when you first get involved, because I'm sure there are some people when you first get into it who aren't involved in the hobby who just don't understand why you would want to get involved with that. What is some of the stuff that you have to kind of overcome <laughs> to get over that stuff? Oh, a lot. Uh, the main thing you have to, you really have to seed into them is, you know, my. I'm, I'm an American. My mm-hmm. grandparents were on the American side. And and even then, it's like, so why don't you do American? You know, it's like, but you have to tell them, okay, I do some events that American, but, pri- you know, primarily German. Well, why do you do German? Like, as much as you tell them, they just they just don't get it. And some people, they never will. They just yeah. assume, oh, he, this guy's a neo, neo-Nazi. I mean, it's... And it's hard to, you know, especially when you're doing Waffen SS. I mean, they, they yeah. see it and they're like, yeah. And you explain to them, okay, the, the unit that I'm portraying, they were they were stationed in Finland. They were helping the Finns. And if you look at the, this is a Waffen SS, 6SS Nord. Most of the guys were, um, you'd have to do some more research sure. on it. But, you know, they, they weren't... Um, you know, there's going to be bad sides to everything, but um, regardless, you you have to. You know, some people they they want to just drill you and drill you like, you know, you're an idiot. Like, especially I, I'm just I'm thinking of a guy in my head at Conneaut. This was probably, I think this was the past year, and he's like, you know, he comes into the German camp, the the Waffen SS. They have an SS section. They have. Um, a here section and they have a Luftwaffe section. And these are all, all three different sections of the German military, World War II. And the guy comes in there and he's like, you know, I'm standing there. My buddy has an MG34 set up, and I'm, you know, telling people. And everyone's, you know, really they love to see the machine guns. Yeah, everybody you loves know. the Hitler bus all. Yeah, yeah. So, and he's like, well, you know, why do you do this? And I said, well, I, you know, I enjoy the history, but. But why in a German, you know, uniform and an SS one at that? And I said, well, I said this is, uh, 
you know, the unit that I'm portraying is a unit stationed in Finland. You know, I have, you know, my grandparents. And it's just like, the guy's like, but why? But why? And I said, You're, whatever answer I give you, mm-hmm. you are not going to. I said, it's, I said, there has to be two sides. I said, you came to this reenactment. I said, would you want to just see the GIs just hit the beach and then just run up the hill? And I said, you, you came here to see it. And, and it is, it is, um, you just ha- you do have to have thick skin, and and there are times where it's just people you're gonna find people like that, and then you have other ones, and especially like the American veterans that they come purposely would come over and thank us for doing. It's like you know I, I I understand why you do it because you have to you know show what you know you're showing what we did back then. And he goes in, and, and there were brave. Germans out there that were fighting for their country and you're you know and yeah you have to put aside you know the yeah and it's not like we're out there portraying a concentration guy I mean that was a horrible thing mm-hmm. that was done you know in Germany at the time and it's and it's always going to be related back to that and, it, and it's a horrible thing so it you know it, it's always going to be you know and there's and there's unwritten rules of decorum. You're not going to go to an event and see some asshole Trump. Well, more often than not, <laughs> see an asshole coming up dressed up like Himmler or fucking Gore yeah. or Hitler. And we tell them to get the fuck out. Yeah. And, and if they come near me, I'm just like, you know, we don't want any of this here. Yeah. You can pound salt, dude. I mean, it's just. But there are there are plenty of them. I mean, and then you'll get these guys that they'll think they're funny, and then they'll like walk in. They're they're doing a Nazi salute and stuff, and you just kind of look at them like. That's not what we're here for, yeah. and it's like if you know, go to a, a clan rally yeah, or something, dude, like that. Else. Yeah, so it's you know, and it's strange that when they, you know, all of us together. I mean, you're reenacting GI, I, I'm reenacting German. I mean, we're all friends in the yeah. end. You know, we're not we're not real enemies. So it's just like when you go behind stage at WWE the two guys who just kick the shit out of each other and they're back there drinking beers playing on what restaurant to go eat dinner at yeah exactly so but some I've met a few that that they take it to the extreme yeah and they and same this is another time when we were we have to go when we're doing Conneaut and this is for the main battle on the last day this is the the beach landing battle because they have several throughout the weekend and we're, they, they, we march out there. D- different ones do it differently, but we march, and then we go set up our stuff. But, I mean, there's we had people in the crowd like, I hope you fucking die, you fucking Nazis. Like, little kids are around yeah. watching. It's like, dude, you realize we're actors. Yeah. Like, this is like, and, and it's just, yeah. So, you know, you have to... You have to take the good with the bad. And and the good is, you know, when we go by the veterans, you know, and sadly there's not too many around anymore, but, you know, they, they really appreciate. He's like, you know, we love seeing the GIs, obviously, and seeing our kid, but it's like for you to dress up like that and come out here, I mean, that takes, mm-hmm. it takes a lot, and it means a lot to us that you do that for us, and and, and they appreciate it. So When it comes to the German equipment, um, in the engineering, what's the one thing uh, that sticks out to you that's just like, this is so simple but so effective, it just makes sense. Why would, you know, obviously other militaries have similar items that are made in a completely different way. What's one of the cooler items in your collection or one of the things you see that you just, just the engineering on just blows your mind? Um, man, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, 
Well, while you're thinking about what? it, because I know you can multitask, um, what weapons do you use in your arsenal at Living History events? What's uh, your your primary go-to? Uh, my go-to, I have uh, my German K98. It's a standard uh, 8mm German Mauser. And I have uh, a Panzer Shrek that, you know, we're doing mostly late war. Anything, you know, with, with GIs in it is, you know... For for us is usually Western Front, uh, France, or possibly um, Germany, or Battle of the Bulge, or something. But yeah, we uh, here in Florida we like to do late war, so we wear HBTs and not wear so much of the wools. But <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help you guys at all because all your stuff's wool. All yeah, the, time. Um, the Germans did actually have um, they did have summer uniforms. They had HBTs, but they weren't as widespread as you would you would see and that's why we generally wear wools and we know a lot of guys and it's I don't know it's kind of like an unwritten rule where it's like frowned upon if you're German and you're wearing HBTs it's like oh you can't cut the wools you know it's because they they were given them but when you look at a lot of the footage and you see I mean you're mostly seeing the wool stuff I yeah. mean and for sure in this in this climate it would be wearing HVT stuff but um, yeah so so like my arsenal I we have a uh, that I built it it's a it's a Panzer Shrek and it shoots it doesn't actually fire them but it simulates the blast so you load the rocket in it hooks up just like a regular Panzer Shrek and it's it's got a black powder charge and it does a a front and rear blast um, out of the out of the Shrek. So that's it's a fun one, especially here in Florida when we have like the largest collection of GI uh, tanks at yeah. every single battle. So you yeah. need something that's gonna and and we've taken them out. They've they've let us taken out uh, several other tanks, and we've done tacticals too where yeah. we've we've knocked them out. So what um you were using a submachine gun today what was that that one and that was and that is for my um we my actually have two yeah yeah so the the first one was a is a finish kp31 it shoots nine millimeter and that one is i i normally had it for my sixth ss impression the what i stated earlier that they were they were trained by the finish they they fought in finland against the soviets and then later on, the the Finns decided to pact with the Soviets when the Germans were losing the war, and in turn ended up fighting the the Germans out of the country. But so they were they were um, issued and trained on it's a it uses a 71 round drum magazine, so it's a high rate of fire. A lot of people they think it's the the PPSH 41. The barrel, because of the barrel holes, it looks very similar. Plus, you put that round drum on there, it does look yeah, like and, a Yeah, and the, the drum is, it looks like a PPSH drum because the the Soviets copied it. It's exactly the same as the PPSH drum. So, And then that's where they got the the idea for that gun in during the Winter War, which um, they fought the Finns. The Finns were kicking the Soviets' asses, and they were using a lot of their you know kp31 so they said we need something like this and that's in turn they designed their uh their ppsh 41 now the other one i was using and i i rarely use it and it's pretty frowned upon because it is a it's a late and i was just doing it for a weapons demonstration it's a uh, pbs 43 which is a late war that's what they 
they they used that was the the next continuation of the PPSH 41 it was designed for using in tanks so the Soviet tankers would use it it's lightweight it's got a folding stock um, basically designed off like how the MP40 with the folding stock it's lighter it shoots a, a lower rate of fire same ammo it's 76225 which is almost identical to nine millimeters it's like a, a thousand soft or something but um, but that one, it's a, it's a B-Fong, and it's B-Fong full auto. So it's just cool to shoot it at a weapons demo, yeah. and it, it works awesome. It doesn't jam. I mean, it's, you know, pure uh, Soviet you, stuff. It works good. But So that, that would be a captured one. You didn't, you hardly saw Germans using it. But I've, um, just because I had the thing, I brought it out for the weapons demo. So. Now, you were stating the other one was... Is that blank? Is that a blank firing weapon, or is that converted? Yeah, they both are. Yeah, the um, the. Well, KP I thought 30. you said it only shoots blanks, as if it was. Yeah, like yeah. A reproduction, or is it an original? Yeah, it's got original parts, but that's how they build the okay. the they build them off of um, to make it a B fine. Is a blank fire only? A so it's kind of like the guys stuff. who buy the blank Thompsons that you can't, you know. Ever yeah, yeah, because yeah. being if it was a. a a full auto live fire. Yeah, I mean, they're like thirty thousand dollars. So, yeah, it it can only it can only fire blanks, and which is fine. But that thing is so problematic. There's always issues with it, and just like you know, any anything that's semi or full auto that shoots blanks, it always has issues. Mm -hmm. You gotta clean so, every little nook and cranny. Yeah, yeah. Except for that PPS 43. Those Soviets, they know how to make them with the right tolerances because I've never had that thing jam on me before. And it's, uh, yeah, and I've shot a lot of, lot of rounds through it. And it's, so they, they did something right on that one. How uncomfortable are those boots with the hobble nails on the bottom? Uh, they're not too bad. You get used to them. Like walking um, on golf cleats. Yeah, it, <laughs> when you walk on hard surfaces like this, yeah, it. Uh, yeah, so I'm wearing um, German low boots. These are the. They came out later in the war. Um, a lot of people they look and they see you know the German with the hijack boots, but yeah. that was that was earlier on, and then they. With leather shortages, they started making um, low boots with uh, gaiters. Well, and that, and you would think that that has more ankle support than a jack boot. Yeah, yeah. And some people like you'd be running around like almost like rubber galoshes, where there's just no ankle support. Yeah, and it is. And I, I remember I was wearing jacks at a tactical one year up in Ohio, and I stepped through a frozen, um, a frozen stream or something, and they filled up with just ice water i mean and it just it just filled up and held it like you're saying like a boot that you could just you know hold the water and so that was a an uncomfortable thing but some man some people that's all they'll wear yeah. like and they did they used them all the way to the end of the war but it, it was definitely more common you know later on in the war to see guys with low boots and on the behalf of Brian Lenovich, Giovanni McCauley, Jeff Copsetta, and myself, Don Abernathy, this has been another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. And if you haven't done so already, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that link for Patreon. Sign up for the Patreon. It's a dollar a month. It'll help support the show, help us bring you great content. And as always, if you sign up for Patreon, you get access to the OG5 podcast, which is a Patreon exclusive, and you get access to free decals and swag as we beta test them before we put them on the market. So once again, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on that Patreon link, and please email us. We want to hear from you, info at WTSP.com. 
If you have ideas for subject matters, uh, different um, things you want us to cover, and anything World War II based uh, or could be Korean as well. So any ideas you have, anything you want us to do, send us an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com and we will talk to you guys here soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>